will be in verses 14 through 23. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 23. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will then say to, or you will then to me, you will say to me then, excuse me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. We are coming on the heels of a very difficult passage in scripture. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This statement of Paul that God, by his own purposes, before either had done anything, chose one over the other, chose Jacob. And not Esau. Paul takes a seemingly, he takes here a detour. The text was not an easy one. And so he wants to take a moment and to re-emphasize what he's just said. And he does so in this very direct and yet somewhat imaginable, much imagination is used here. You can imagine for a second with me, if you have... Uh, any skill at doing anything, be it artistic skill or uh, maybe you're good at mathematics or science or you've planted a garden or anything like that. Maybe you work at home with wood, you build any of these things. You can imagine uh, the humor in the fact if I'm sitting here and I'm whittling a piece of wood and the wood says to me, no, nah, that's not right. You, no, you, oh, you messed that up. How dare you do it that way? You can imagine if a musician is writing a piece of music and the notes start to say, you have put me on the wrong line. I should be over here. I'm not an eighth note. I'm actually a quarter note. Something laughable about this. We know that we as creators, when we create something, we're in charge of what we create. It would be ridiculous for something that we have made to criticize us, the only exception being children. That was a joke. We can laugh, right? 
Paul is aware of the difficulty of what he has just said. He knew there would be questions. The doctrine of election is not one that is easy for us to swallow. So Paul is going to take a moment and he's going to defend what he's just taught. He uses questions here uh, to defend his, his position. And these are questions that he would have heard, I, I imagine, that were objections to his teaching. The major objection being this, if it's God who chooses, how can God then be righteous? If it's God who chooses, in essence, this is a cry of, this is not fair. Fairness demands that I get the opportunity to choose. If this is how it is, then God is not just. He cannot be a just God. How can he, God, blame people who reject him if he's not chosen them? This is the crux of Paul's argument here. He's going to refute this. I don't think it's hard for us. When we hear these objections, we go, hey, yeah, how is that right? How is it just for God uh, to condemn those who have no chance to choose him? And you would think Paul might, as would be my temptation, well, let me soften the blow for you. Well, I'm going to take a few steps back from what I just said. I just said to you, Jacob he loved and Esau he hated, but let me, let me kind of couch that language a little bit for you. That's not what Paul does. Paul plows forward all the more. He says, it's God's free, it's, God is free to act as he will. He is the creator, you are the creature. And you cannot assume that the God of creation is going to operate based upon your finite logic. The only standard by which God must be judged is himself. By his own sovereign choice, he had led some to salvation and others he does not. So as we come to this text today, we're going to see three things. A God of justice, a God of creation, and a God of glory. A God of justice, a God of creation, and a God of glory. Paul begins here by asking the question, what shall then we say? Or what shall we say then? Paul often uses this, as we've been going through Romans, he also uses this as a transition then to go deeper into the argument or the topic that he's trying to make. He's going to advance his position all the more. And he's going to introduce a defense to his teaching. Is there unrighteousness with God? Or as it says here, is there injustice on God's part? This is the major objection to the teaching of election. In essence, it's a cry of God is not being fair with us. Is God being unjust or unjust? I think to answer this question, we have to consider what is this justice or what is this righteousness that Paul is speaking to. And to 
talk about God's righteousness, the only person or the only thing that you can point to is God himself. It's God as characterized by his faithfulness to his promise. God's faithfulness to his covenant with Israel. We read that in the psalm this morning. His hesed, his saying that he's going to do the things he has promised to do. God is always righteous in this. God has set the standard by what is right. God has set it. And so Paul outwardly and forcefully rejects this. By no means. No, God is not unjust in any way. He is not unrighteous in any way. So on what basis does Paul reject this? As we just seen, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. But he goes even further in this. And he gives us a positive and then a negative example. The first positive example is Moses. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And this comes out of Exodus 33, 19. Moses is standing there on the mountain, and he's just asked God, will you show me your goodness? And God said in 33, 19, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In essence, God is saying here, I'm going to give mercy and grace to you, Moses. And it is my prerogative to do so. All his goodness would pass before Moses. And he would proclaim his name to him. This is actually here Yahweh. He says, I will proclaim my name is Yahweh to you. I am who I am. God chooses to do this, not because of anything in Moses. Not because Moses was so great and grand and requested it. No, he did it for his own good purposes and because he chose to. Therefore, as Paul goes on here, so then it depends not on human will or exertion. On the positive hand, it depends on God's goodness and his mercy. And it does not, on the opposite hand, depend on the will and exertion or the work of humans. It's not about what we do. It's not about what we say. It's not about how good we can be. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will be gracious on whom he will be gracious. God chooses to show mercy. It is his will It depends not on ours. And to prove this, he goes, Paul pushes us even further. Okay, he was gracious to Moses, but let's talk about another character. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. Okay, let's just stop there for a second. For this purpose I have raised you up. This is a quote from the Old Testament. He's about to give us the reason why Pharaoh was even ever created. For this purpose, Pharaoh, I raised you up. I created you. I gave you your position. I gave you your authority. For this reason, for this purpose, I raised you up. 
that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The reason Pharaoh where, was where he was, when he was, was for two purposes. So that God's power might be seen and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That is why Pharaoh was ever where he was. That's why he was created. That's why he was raised up. That's why he was elevated to the position he was in. For those two reasons. Moses, as you know, has been coming before Pharaoh over and over again, demanding the release of Israel. And Pharaoh, over and over again, rejected this. Why? We could come and we could say, look, there's all manner of earthly reason why he would not. He's stubborn. He's prideful. He doesn't want to lose his workforce. But Paul says to us, no. He refused that God might demonstrate his power so that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart served a purpose, the greatest purpose imaginable for the honor and glory of God, for the proclamation of his name. What is gained in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. What is gained in this? God through Pharaoh caused a much more spectacular and unimaginable deliverance for Israel. Remember the plagues? Over and over and over again, God demonstrated his power. And then as Israel's fleeing, we see the dividing of the Red Sea. God demonstrating his power. I have authority over this creation. And you will recognize who I am. God hardens whom he wishes. And he freely bestows mercy on who he wishes. What does this mean to harden? What does it mean that it says he hardened Pharaoh's heart? It means he made him spiritually insensitive that he could only and would only reject God. This hardening which led to wrath and destruction. And some will say, well, this is just God looking at Pharaoh and affirming his already hard heart. No, that is not what Exodus says. Exodus very clearly says, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. I am the hardening agent in Pharaoh's life. I have done it, says God. It was a sovereign act, not caused by anything that Pharaoh had already done. And this stirs up a negative reaction in us. It flies in the face of everything we want to believe about our own freedom and will. It flies in the face of how we perceive God's justice. Let me take a moment to say this. We do have free will, 
And we do have a responsibility to respond to God. But I want to note here, Paul never tries to reconcile the two. He never tries to reconcile human responsibility and response and God's election. But he asserts both strongly. The hardening of Pharaoh is a sovereign act of God. God gives grace where he wills. And he does not give grace also where he wills. Two truths remain. God hardens and softens, but we are still responsible for our condemnation. Paul reminds us, oh, children, it's not about you. It's about God. God will be glorified. His name will be made known. Why does he do this with Pharaoh? So that his power and his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is his ultimate goal. He doesn't say, I hardened Pharaoh's heart so that I might save these few people over here. That's not what he says. He says it's for my glory, for my power, for my name. We have wrongly superseded God and put ourselves in his place. We think that we are the ultimate of all creation. That our mind, our rationality supersedes all else. And we're wrong. We look at God and say, well, it is unjust, God, that you would create Pharaoh only for the purpose of yourself. And we look at God and say, you are arrogant in doing that. That we may not say that with our, our mouth, but that's what we're doing. We are calling God arrogant when we say it is unfair for you to do this. He responds to us. Oh, man. Who are you? <coughs> who are you to answer back to God? You are the created. I am the creator. It's about me. We, we say this in our, the, our first catechism, right? What is the chief and the man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's about God's glory. He is concerned with his own glory. He will see his name proclaimed. He will see all the nations acknowledge it. Verse 16, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will then say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul goes on. And he now asserts through this next question, the God of creation. If we are responsible for our own actions, the thought continues, God's judgment 
cannot be just. Why does he find fault in us? Paul makes no reference to faith or works here. He does not weaken his argument. But he continues with his objection to this line of thinking. And he does so by pointing to the potter. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Will the molded say to the molder, why have you created me in such a fashion? And as we've seen, this is laughable in a way. When you build a house, the house does not say to you, why have you built me this way? We understand this, don't we? We understand that when we build something, it doesn't answer back to us. God has built us, and we have no right to answer back to him. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Paul very boldly and directly states here, we are made from one lump. The lump, we'll call it humanity. And from that lump, he has created some for honorable use and he has created some for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? How does that verse strike you? Do you revolt against that a little? What if God, has created these vessels of wrath. And he's just left them there to be vessels of wrath so that his power might be made known. God has withheld judgment so he might display his power and his nature. He demonstrates his anger towards sin, but he also makes known his saving power. He would have been full in his right as he came to Adam and Eve in the garden and said, hey, where are you? Knowing where they were. I said, hey, why are you, not, why are you wearing these leaves? Knowing why they were wearing these leaves. He was in his right at that moment to say, judgment. Let's be done. I gave you my stipulation. You failed to live up to my stipulation. Let's go. Paul says, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power endured with patiently with vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory? For vessels of mercy, 
Why are there vessels of wrath? So that he might show to his vessels of mercy his power and his name. Have you ever considered for a moment that the fact that there are unbelievers in this world is to show us God? Is that not what Paul is saying here? He makes known his saving power through vessels of wrath. And we have to recognize that we want to look at the world a certain way. But we are not God. We are not this world's creator. We are not our own creator. We have to acknowledge that God is sovereign over all things. We cannot judge God according to our standard. I mentioned last week, this is a difficult text in Scripture. And I don't stand here going, this is Daniel's interpretation and view on this thing. Let's just buy into what Daniel's saying. I'm asking you to contend with the Scripture. This is one of those times, I think, where we can go and we go, what is Paul talking about here? But Paul really does not pull any punches in his language here, does he? What if God created vessels of wrath so he might show his power and glory to vessels of mercy? He does not pull his punch. It's all about God who has mercy. And in the reality is we can look at this and we can be angered or we can look at this and be overjoyed. We can have comfort because at the end of the day, it's not about you. It's not about your choice. It's not about what you've done. Left to ourselves, we would never choose God. You know yourself. You know your sinful heart. Our bent is not towards God. It's not. Our bent is towards ourselves. Left to ourselves, we would gain only destruction. But God, in his wonderful, gracious mercy, has not left us to ourselves. He has mercy on those he has called. He is in control over his creation. He has made, we are literally lumps of clay. Adam was made from the dirt of the earth. He can do with us as he pleases. And who are we to question him? We must understand our place before him. He is God. His word is sure and we must surrender to him. And it is all, it is all for the glory of God. God withholds judgment to make known his glorious riches to the vessels on whom his mercy rests. It's all for his glory. Yes, some he hardens. Yes, some receive his mercy, but it's about him. God is not an unjust tyrant. Paul is going on the offensive. He's strengthening his teaching God gives grace to certain people whom he chooses on the basis of nothing that they've done, on the basis of his own sovereign will and others he has rejected. <clears throat> Many Jews have failed to embrace this gospel, he's saying, because God has willed it, God has hardened them. And what is the benefit of the hardening of the Jewish hearts? The gospel goes to the nations. Because the Jews rejected him, he found his people among the Gentiles. And so we have to understand, you're a piece of pottery. 
You have been fearfully and wonderfully made. You have been made to be a certain thing. There's nothing we can do to, to change how God has made us. We want to be in control. But that is not the reality of how things are. And therefore, we must humble ourselves before God, knowing that he is working all things out for his own glory. He is working things out so his power and name might be known in all the earth. The doctrine of election is a hard doctrine. And we revolt against it because of our preconceived notions of justice and who we think God should be. But as we come to his word, we see that we have a good and just God, and we cannot for a moment say that there is any unrighteousness in him. He is good and perfect in all ways. He is so sovereign over all things. And he is sovereign over all things because he has created all things. He has made each of us for a specific purpose. He has made us that we might be a glory to him. That is true of Pharaoh. And that is true of Moses. It is true of Jacob. And it's true of Esau. It's true of Ishmael. It's true of Isaac. He chose some for wrath and some for mercy. But all he has made give him glory. So let us be reminded of his glory. Let us be used in the service of that glory. Let us magnify in the wonderful reality that he has made us to be his own. There are other passages, and there are even other passages of Paul, where he will talk about human responsibility. He will talk about human choosing. And these doctrines are right and true, but I want to not even touch on those today. Because Paul, in a very specific way, in a very direct way, is challenging us. And there are many people who will come to this text of Scripture and they will simply skip it. And they skip it because it's hard. This is hard for us. How are we to understand this? We can't just skip it. We can't just move past it. We can't just go over it. Because Paul is very direct with us here. And if we believe Scripture to be the inerrant, infallible Word of God, then we must deal with it. Are we ready to take ourselves out of the position of God and let God be where he should be. He is sovereign over all things. He hardens for his glory. He softens for his glory. Would we, as his faithful children, come before him, acknowledge his sovereign right, surrender ourselves to him, and then glorify? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we acknowledge the heart.
hardness of this doctrine and the hardness of this text. But we ask your grace and mercy on us that we would be able to surrender to what your word says. We may not understand it. We may not like it. But we know that you are in control, that you are indeed sovereign over all things. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.